Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 118. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is juggler and actor Michael Rayner. Before we talk to Michael, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association, having their big festival this year in South Bend, Indiana. Have a great time. Wish I could be there. Hey, before we go any further, let's give a shout out to Eric Bates, past Drop Everything guest, who has a new book out called The Contemporary Circus Handbook. Check it out at Amazon.com or visit his website for more information. All right, Drop Everything. Get ready for Michael Rayner. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast, number 118. My very special guest, Mr. Michael Rayner. Greetings, Michael. Uh, greetings back to you. And I'm, I was, you know, I was strangely thrilled and excited to actually be recognized by the IJA because I feel like I'm never around actually at meetings or anything, but you guys know me and that was sweet and I was excited. Well, we're always excited to talk to jugglers who have made an impact, who have gotten some exposure and who represent juggling in a positive light. Well, I, uh, that's yet to be seen. Hopefully it is positive. I hope it is. Well, we'll see how this goes. And then we can, deter- we can decide for ourselves if it's uh, a positive experience for you and whether the IJ is going to accept you even more now awesome. that you've done the Drop Everything podcast. Awesome. I'm thrilled. Now, you book yourself as comedian, juggler, actor, strange guy. Which came first? I would say the strange guy is first a little bit of ju- a lot of juggling second and then all of a sudden actor when i came to la was third until more recently than back to mostly juggler now before you come to la where were you born and raised a small town in michigan it's a, a town called goodrich it was uh, 15 minutes south of flint an hour north of detroit i don't know if you want to just get into it but sure while I was at the University of Michigan Flint in my little small town I would commute to, I would go to school during the day. In the evening, I would um, be custodial. There was an amusement park being built when I would dump the trash out at night. They were building an amusement park. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if they'll need any juggling because I started practicing between high school and college. And wouldn't you know it, two years later, when they finished this amusement park, that was my first gig. Auto World is the name. It's now since been defunct and destroyed. It, it, but uh, that was the first grinded out seven shows a day, 90 days straight other than one day off. And what was your first exposure to juggling? Do you remember the first juggler you saw? Oh, a thousand percent, yes. Two main influences. One for the wacky, weird, cool, comedic value was Steve Martin because he didn't even do anything technical. It was just the expressive excitement and, and his uh, little novelty things peppered into his stand-up, I thought was phenomenal. Now, I was in the Steve Martin fan club um, for quite a while. And then the other three is definitely Michael Davis. Saw him at a play before I even picked up anything to juggle. I saw him in Sugar Babies in 1981 in New York City with Ann Miller and Mickey Rooney. And he by far stole the show. He was the thing. And then the other thing is I went and saw the Flying Care Matsops too. And I just was like, uh, this is a thing. I love it. That was why after high school, that was pretty much ground zero of starting to practice. And were you self-taught or did you have someone help you? You know, I tell this in my show when I'm doing family shows or kid shows that it's shocking that uh, today you can go on the internet and see a trick and work your way through it and learn it within a few minutes. Back in the day, you had to get a book from the library or wherever and look at diagrams and try to figure it out. And so I am self-taught plus diagram taught juggler. And and, and it's funny because one of the tricks that I do is I spin things on a parasol. Well, I didn't even find any diagrams on that, but I, I just knew that it was a trick people did. And I didn't even ever really pay attention. So I always just learned one handed. And that actually helps me now because I can do both hands and pop things over between two parasols. But a lot of people are using a two-handed technique. So weirdly enough, not having a mentor on that helped me have more skill in a weird way. Now, we're around the same age. Do you remember the juggling book by Carlo? Um, I do. I think I actually have that in my garage. I believe I have that one. Because that one was the one I learned from. And it was a pretty good source. 
But, but but like you, I had to go to the library and I would just yeah. try to look for juggling references and anywhere I could find them. Yeah, I my favorite thing is it's like I would go super old school with this weird old dude just talking about how to get gigs and how to send out letters. And he was like some old vaudevillian, which I think it was like a, a it I've never seen it in print. And I wish I could find that book again because it was it was quaint and charming. Yeah, I had a weird old guy myself. His name was Bufo the Clown. Oh. And he saw me juggling like the cheap uh, balls you would get like a, at a drugstore, like the rubber ones, like rubber yeah, dog yeah. balls. And he was the first one that showed me about lacrosse balls. Yeah, I started with those too, actually. Funny you should say that. Because just juggling balls weren't really a thing when I started, you know. I just went and got some balls or like whatever junk store was available. I'm even worse than you. I started with three green oranges. Oh, yeah. They lasted longer. They didn't split sure. up as quick as the, the ripe ones. And I also started in an amusement park uh, doing eight sets a day, uh, half an hour on, half an hour off. So how did you book your amusement park gig? So you saw that they were building one. How'd you actually book the gig? It's so funny, gosh, how we both are the same age and have that amusement park beginning. It was a weird thing. I first went in and did what I thought you do at an audition. And I was like, and and I didn't hear anything. And then I saw they were auditioning again. And then I just went in and I just did my personality of what I thought would be interesting. I did what I wanted to, not what I thought somebody would want. And then they really just liked my genuine personality. You know what I mean? And so... And that's and then I got the gig and um, and I was super thrilled and excited because basically, I mean, everybody knows you're two years into a, a career or whatever you want to call it. You're terrible. And they still hired me. You know what I mean? I look at the old footage like there was a few like new. I don't even have any my own video footage because this was even before everyone had video cameras. But there was a news um, video team there. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is just uh, I can't hardly watch it. But. They loved it, and it allowed me to do seven shows a day, half an hour on, half an hour off, and just go through the terribleness to get to good bits. And did you do any what they call line relief, where you would like work the the roller coaster lines, or oh, you know what? Luckily, oh, I'm so you know that sounds even more difficult. Luckily, there was a stage. It was a stage at the middle of this dome called Auto World. I would be on and then it, like there would be a bluegrass band on and it was we would uh, go back and forth and it worked out great. You know, I just got to stay in one spot and it was weird because it's like they really let us do whatever we wanted to do because me and the other uh, novelty performers, we just decided one day, let's have today be a bathrobe day. So we yeah. just did our shows in our bathrobes. And I just thought that was uh, so nice that they would allow that, that they were like, that's fine. And the only bad thing that I got kind of called out on doing is um, Auto World was an unmitigated failure. I don't know if you remember, it was in the movie Roger and Me. When a newspaper article, a reporter asked me about Auto World, I said, it's great. I get to see everybody that comes through the park, you know, because it's uh, I get to see everybody. There's nobody that doesn't get to see my show. And they said to me, that sounds like we don't have big crowds and it's not popular. So I was saying, I thought I was saying it as a nice thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I guess you know everybody by name. Right, it's right. so personal. Yes, yes. But what a great experience because I think every young performer uh, should go through a period of time where they're just banging out a lot of shows. 100%. Yeah. And, and that's sort of lacking now in that, that those opportunities don't really exist. I know a lot of jugglers who came through Disneyland because uh, I grew up in LA and now you know you moved to LA. But Disneyland was a big breeding ground for a lot of jugglers who went on to become uh, professionals. Oh, that's great. I mean, and then I got to continue that when I went down to Universal Studios, Florida, I did like a, a year and I did like 14 months of my show down there also. And was there any uh, performing in your background as far as your family or did you do like uh, high school drama? What was uh, your early background like? Well, here's the thing. I'm one of the few people, you know, they always say your personality is kind of the same. A lot of people do anyways. I was super introverted, super shy, couldn't look people in the eye, you know, no love life, no nothing. And, um, you know, that kind of poster boy, like that nothing's going well for this guy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately I do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that you were on the same page on this. And then, and then something clicked like, my senior year, I tried out for the school musical and I got a ro the role as Big Julie in Guys and Dolls. 
because I figured you, I can have an alter ego than just my, you know, when I'm just talking to people, I can be more expressive. And then in normal life, I can be more shy, which is fine. And that, and that was the first kind of showbiz thing I did in high school was that. And then the summer is when I started practicing and two years later is when, and I mean, the very first paid gig, I can remember the first paid gig. I know this is kind of weaving things around, but mm, it's okay. I had two years of just practicing in my house or outside. And I happened to be at a country fair in a small town called Ortonville. This is like super rural. They uh, said to the audience, hey, we're going to have a talent show up here in a half an hour or whatever it was. Do you have any talent? Come sign up. And I think only five of us signed up and I just had uh, five minutes of juggling stuff and I just sort of yelled at the crowd and did a few things. And um, at the end, I took first place and won $25. And that was like, this is what, this is a thing. This is a thing. And I was amazingly excited. I just started trying to find little weird uh, talent shows where I could win $10, $15. And this is like 1980. 84, somewhere in there, right before I started working at Auto World. And it just worked. I started making little bits of money. That first money, that $25, I saw the uh, the premiere of uh, Blade Runner. Uh, that was what that money went to, and it was very exciting. And why do you think you chose juggling out of, you could have chose magic or ventriloquism or, or just tried to be a stand-up. What about a juggling intrigued you? Philosophically, I loved stand-up. But, but there was something about juggling that I'm like, you can do shows for everybody. Stand-ups, you're kind of, you know, you're relegated to the stand-up clubs or corporate or whatever. But this, with the juggling, you could also do amusement parks and kids shows and family shows and church shows. And I just felt, it, weirdly enough, it was just more of a practical thing where even if they don't like the words I'm saying, they will enjoy the visual aspect. So I have a one-two punch. Then if they like both, it's great, you know? So I think it was just like giving myself more opportunity to make money also. And it's weird looking back on it, but I really do remember that there was a thing. And magic to me was such finesse and so difficult. And if you screw up in magic, you've blown it. You like, you can't reset. I try a big trick, fails, but I know I can get it like 50% of the time. The second time, even more people like, oh my gosh, that's great. He did it this time. And so that was that aspect too. Any particular favorite uh, stand-ups growing up? I know you mentioned Steve Martin. Were there other sort of more pure stand-ups you can think about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, you know, George Carlin. I had all of George Carlin's, but he's a whole different genre. And I just didn't think I could pull off the George Carlin. But I loved him and I thought he was great. And he was one of my favorites. And weirdly enough, I loved Sam Kinison like the very beginning of Sam Kinison, and that's kind of in some of my persona when I'm doing shows is very uh, somewhat aggressive, but always friendly aggressive. And that's what I think I kind of liked about Kinison is that he was, I saw him live and I think I was like three seats back. Like I was, I don't know, 16 or 15 or whatever I was in Detroit and just his power was amazing. That's what I thought was incredible. And you sort of uh, landed on something pretty organically true in that the difference between like stand-ups and jugglers I think stand-ups are often quite jealous that we can actually go out and, and get decent money for work where they have either the comedy club and they have to make it as a comedian, but they really don't have the circuit that we're allowed to do, whether it's a library or a school. And they go, well, yeah, we go out and make $400 and the pay in comedy clubs is notoriously low. And even more so now, unless you're obviously, you know, like a Bill Burr or whatever, like, you know, one of the big ones, but like just regular touring comics, the pay is low. And especially if you're depending on a door deal, it can be even more uh, dismal. I mean, I remember specifically a, a comedian friend of mine who's somewhat successful in LA named Eddie Pepitone. When I told him I was going off to do like four library shows in two days and I was going to, I think, bring home um, like $1,600. He was like, what are you telling me? He just, it just blew his mind. So yeah, that, maybe there is a bit of a jealousy too. How'd you make the move? So you, you grew up in Michigan, then you worked at Universal Studios. Why'd you decide to move to Los Angeles? Well, 
uh, how it went was it was Michigan. Then I was in uh, Atlanta at Six Flags Over Georgia for three and a half years. Then wow. down U- Universal for, or actually, then there was six months at Tampa Bay or in Tampa at Bush Gardens. I did quite a bit of the amusement park work at the very beginning. And then the, my favorite thing about the the amusement park in, in uh, uh, Bush Gardens was when I was told. If you ever see the chimpanzee with the trainer, do not look the chimpanzee in the eye. It will kill you. It wants oh. to dominate. And <laughs> and it was like, I was like, that was very terrifying on your first day of work. You know what I mean? Well, people are surprised how powerful chimpanzees are. Oh, they are so powerful. And they and they want to be a dominant. And they're not like dogs. Dogs love to be trained. Chimpanzees, no, they do not. It was very scary. So I go from there, there, Atlanta, then back to down to Orlando. And then in the wife and I, then my girlfriend, but now my wife, we wrote a show and toured the fringe circuit around Canada. We had an indoor show. I had my outdoor show. We toured Canada. We left Orlando and we, we just hit LA and we're like, we got nothing else. Let's pick, let's just make this the home base now. And it was smart decision. We explain to our audience how fringe shows work. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's similar today. You know, this was back, I think we did it, the, uh, I believe it was 84, when was it, 94. Yeah, we did the 1994 fringe tour. And you send in a little, like, a, maybe 100 bucks, 200 bucks, I can't remember exactly what, to say, yes, we want to be part of this. And then they give you five to six nights in a theater and there's a bunch of shows so you're competing against everybody but it's a fun thing where people can come and see a show at three in the afternoon nine at night sometimes midnight shows and then you get the door because you've given them this money up front and you get the door money which is great and so we just started in montreal and then worked our way to minnesota the wife had to go do a TV show because she's like she was the co-host of a show called Guts and Global Guts for Kids on Nickelodeon. Then she came back and we I did Saskatoon on my own and then over to the East Coast, like uh, Vancouver and Victoria. And uh, and that's the French tour. And so you make money and you're, you're either getting hotels or living with people because sometimes they'll they'll give you housing or billeting, as they call it. It's fun to do when you're young and have a lot of energy and just drive everywhere and maybe and stay with weird people which we did and it was bizarre you know but once you get older not so much i did it, i did it once and, and that was enough for us it was great got to see all of canada it was amazing and how do you sell tickets do you have to go out and promote are there a certain numbers sold by the fringe itself you are in charge of selling all your tickets. So you go out there with your flyers like before the show, day before the show. And then they have the box office that sells everything. I don't know. I don't think we physically gave tickets, but you just start promoting your show and that people go buy the tickets at the box office at the theater that you're located at. Now, we have another thing in common because when you moved to L.A., you ended up in the San Fernando Valley. I did. And are you, are you now in Studio City, if I'm correct? We are in North Hollywood. We, but funny you should say that. That's where we, I might have mentioned this before. When we first, our apartment, when we first got to town was in um, Studio City um, on uh, Fruitland Drive in Studio City, which was right by the tennis, court, the tennis courts when we moved in. And then it became a Ralph's and a little uh, shopping mall. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that area. I grew up in Studio City and uh, I had a street. You know they have that game where you like you pick your porn star name. Yes. Based on your the name the first street you lived on, you can remember. And the first street I can remember was called Babcock. Oh my gosh, that's a great porn name, and I I I see Babcock all the time. Yeah, because that's where the library is. Yeah, 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 yeah. In yeah. Studio City and the park. Yeah, definitely. So we we definitely we have a lot of similarities. Uh, that we became jugglers and we were in the valley, but where our paths never crossed. Weirdly enough, they never did. I can't, I'm never sure if I've ever saw you live once. Did you ever come do a guest performance at the Groundhog Festival in Atlanta? Did you ever pop in and do? I it? did as a solo, but the Raspini brothers never did. Okay, I, I went once just to watch some performers, but I can't remember if I saw you then or maybe just on video, probably. My performance was very unremarkable. I remember <laughs> making a bad choice and doing what I like sort of a gentleman juggler piece. And it was sort of to this sort of slow dirgy music. 
And I thought it might have worked maybe in a theatrical context, but they had the contest like in a, a big gymnasium. Right. And then, then I, they have a cabaret where I did some comedy and people were like, oh, you should have done the comedy and maybe you would have won one of the awards. But uh, it was a poor, a poor uh, decision on my part. I did not ever win a ground. Did you ever win one of the Groundhog uh, Awards and compete with uh, oh, Groundhog never- State? I have never competed in any in any like uh, juggling association uh, venue. The only thing I, I've I've done America's Got Talent, and that was the uh, only competition thing I've ever done. Well, let's talk about your experiences in L.A. and how you sort of went from this fringe performer guy. So you get out to L.A. Did you already have some work lined up, or what was it like when you first got there? Well, here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a name that is more IJA uh, centric, as my friend Laura Green who just through a series of people, I don't know how she knew me, but she reached out to me and said, hey, come on over and I'll tell you the LA scene. And she gave me a bunch of juggling pins and I don't even know if she got me gigs, but she just welcomed me to to town and, and then kind of explained a little bit about shows and different things. And luckily, when I first got to town, I was once again going anywhere where I could make um, like 50 bucks at a talent show. I went down to like Laguna Niguel to a gay bar and won their talent show. And it was funny because it's like uh, I'm very gay friendly. I don't I don't mind. But the weird thing is I'm, I'm a kid from the Midwest and I I won this show and I'm talking to the bartender. I turn around and then he's got his shirt off and he's just standing there with his shirt off. And I found it charming and delightful, you know. During that time, I just started sending out all my information to um, commercial agents. And weirdly enough, I I got an agent. And pretty soon after moving here, I think with like four or five months, I got um, a big commercial that the it was like um, I was with Ringo Starr was one of them. But we did a series of them. The first time we did like six or seven. And the next year we did like eight. So that was enough money. That alone was enough money to last like each time I did it was to last a year. And during that time, I kept on making more and more connections with doing warm up on sitcoms. I mean, this all weaves into the same thing and how life is serendipitous and also just being prepared at the same time. When we were in Orlando, the wife and I, this this will all make sense in a second. There's a lot of roads we have to take right now. Okay, I'm glad to hear it. Um, when we were in Orlando, I was working Universal Studios Florida. I befriended a producer at Nickelodeon who always liked my stuff. And she says, hey, do you want to work with me on this kid's talk show? And I'm like, well, I got my show here. Two weeks later, they said, you know, we're discontinuing the juggling show. And I immediately called her. and She goes, oh, great. I still can use you. So then I became a TV producer. But weirdly enough, I was making half as much money as a juggler. So that was kind of funny because I had an office and I was a TV producer because she just liked the way I worked with uh, families and kids. During that time, they were casting a Nickelodeon show called Guts and Global Guts. Well, Guts, it was a sports action show uh, where kids did like American Idol, or, no, American Gladiator type events and they needed a co-host. I got my wife's info into that, into the casting area and then she gets it. She meets a guy named Mike O'Malley. So they become, you know, he's friends and they do this show for 127 episodes over three years or four nice. years or whatever it was. Yeah. Fast forward, we're in LA. He said, Hey, I'm shooting a pilot. I've got a warm up on the show, but do you want to come do some of your juggling stuff? And I'm like, Done and done. So I go, and here's the thing I, I want to be super positive because you meet so many not positive people, but the warm up could not have been nicer. Sweet guy named Don Reed. I forever owe him, I owe him my house I'm living in right now. And I'll explain why. He saw that I was talented, and instead of being threatened, he's like, let me help you. And this is what I like. Real talent meets talent and wants to facilitate help, and they are not threatened. Maybe sometimes they are, but this guy could not have been nicer or more genuine. And he said, let me give you a tutorial on how to do warm-up, because you can make 2000 a night, which is great. And he gave me everything I needed to know, and then I just started cold-calling like producers or TV shows that have a live studio audience and say, hey, I do warm up because even though I'd never done it officially, I'd done 15 minutes. And so you can cheat that on a resume because I was on a soundstage. I was with an audience. And then I had this guy, Don Reed, as my um, reference. And then it all started popping and I started making warm up for 
I don't know, four or five, six years, something like that. And it, it, I went from when the wife and I got to town having like 50,000 in debt to having a ton of savings enough to put a down payment on a house because of my buddy, Don Reed. And, um, and it was, that's, that's how you get into warm up. And warm up is when you're hanging out with the audience, when they're shooting the, um, you know, the sitcom that has a multi-cam, you know, show, not like a, not like a sign, not like a Seinfeld is a yes. It has multi-cam. A Curb Your Enthusiasm is a no. It's just single cam for, for those in the know. But you're also talking about the shows that have a live audience that's sitting there. Yeah. How many hours do they have to sit there while there's a filming of a sitcom? That is why having little skills, any kind of little skills is very helpful because it's like four hours. It's, it's, a, it's an arduous thing to try to keep an audience going for four hours, you know, to have the the laughter be as genuine at hour one as it is on hour four. And some shows I did really well and other shows, the shows just didn't hit well. And no matter what you did, you really couldn't get them engaged. And there's also like, I remember I was doing a show. I'm not going to name the name of the show. It's, it was just a pot. It was actually like a four episode or five episode and then got canceled. I had people in my audience that just got back from Fallujah and we're in war. And the the whole show was about 30 something dudes that don't know what to do with their life. And they're, they're kind of pampered. And these guys had just gotten back from real wartime. You know what I mean? They, they just were like, you think that's a problem? You know, they, I could see the disconnect and you try your best to get the audience to laugh. But at the end of the day, they're like, eh, it's not for me. So. And did you have interaction with the actors? And there any particular actors that uh, stand out as being particularly friendly? A hundred percent. I'm going to tell you my favorite actors were, I did a show that only lasted, I think, about 12 episodes called Secret Lives of Men. It had Mitch Rouse, Bradley Whitford, and Peter Gallagher. And they, every time, would thank me for um, warming up the audience it was a Wit Thomas Harris production, which was um, uh, the Thomas part was Danny Thomas's kid. And the producers, the big guys would come over and thank me. And it was very genuine and very, very sweet. Other times I was yelled at for, for, for stuff. I mean, it's like I remember I was doing a show. This is why I don't do it as much anymore, because it, it is emotional where um, I um, was doing a show where they said, listen, just don't get the audience really hyped. Just let them laugh when they want to laugh. Don't go overboard. Don't go get them all excited. So, okay. So I, I start and they, they said, oh, that's still too much. So I get, bring it down. And halfway in the show, they just yell at me, why are they not laughing? Well, <laughs> and so you're talking to a, like a director, a producer, and an actor, and they all tell you different things. You just have to say yes. Your, your job is to say yes. And then it, it gets emotionally difficult sometimes. I mean, even on some shows, I was on that 70s show for a year. Every time I got done, I would say, hey, is this what you want? They go, yes. Is this what you want? Yes. Like episode 16, they were like, ah, the executive producer decides he doesn't like you. I like you. My my contact, my, my producer, he says, I like you, but he's decided he doesn't like you. So this will be your last night. And, but the nice thing about them, and I'm, I'm never going to throw them under the bus. He was like, I'm going to pay you for two episodes. So I got two episodes for not even doing it. And then, so that was sweet. There's just times, no matter what you do, it's not you. You know, that's the way it is. Well, it's a fickle business. I mean, it's yeah. just by its nature. And like you're saying, very few people will go to bat for you. Like if someone else doesn't like you, especially someone higher up the food chain, yeah. that's all it takes. That's all it takes. No, 100%. That is, I, I want to tell everybody listening, every juggler, every performer, I want them to know that you can be the best. And if somebody, you might look like the bookers, like the bookers person that, you know, uh, you took her, like whoever it is, somebody that did him, did him dirty. <laughs> I just can't hire that person because they look like that guy. So you just never know. Well, that's the thing in commercials too. And I think this is a mistake some of uh, the jugglers do is when they get started, they don't think about commercials or getting a commercial agent or getting good headshots. Oh. And they just they just totally don't even think about that that part of the market. Well, and also you got to make sure to book yourself, try to book yourself as an actor first and then in your special skills put the juggling stuff because they might just like your look, but if you just say I'm a juggler, that's a very narrow range of uh, uh gigs out there cuz 
of my 65 national commercials I did, I think three had juggling in them, just three out of the 65. So my friend, Steve Valentine, who's a magician, very successful magician, he kept it on the down low for many years that he, he was an actor. And then people did know he was a magician also because you kind of get typecast also as this one thing. So it's like, I mean, you can just go out as the juggler person, but your opportunities are a little bit less. Because remember, when you're a performer, you can go into a commercial audition and just use your performing skills as a as a personality to get the gig without even juggling. Well, the commercials I saw, uh, most of them were juggling. You have kind of a unique appeal, I would call it. It's sort of every man kind of, it's not, uh, you know, the the leading man. It's more of the... <laughs> That's so true. No, that would, I mean, let me even cut to the chase on this. When you get to the audition or when you get the sides for the audition, you'll read the description of who they want. It's usually like nerdy, not picked in sports guy, a schlub or whatever. There's so, it's so <laughs> right. degrading and humiliating. It's like, and you think this is me? Uh, hey, I'm married with children. What do I care? You know? It's like, yeah, we're looking for the nebbishy nerd guy. Yes. Okay, where's our Nebuchy nerd guys? I guess it's this room here because they're all a bunch of Nebuchy nerd guys. So. Yeah. And they go, that's us. <laughs> We're here as long as we get picked for the commercial. Yeah. I find the funny thing is that also they have so little understanding of what a juggler can do sometimes. Oh. Like we went up for a Bud Light commercial. I don't know if it was Bud Light. Maybe that's just, uh, just thinking about it because it's in the news recently. But they had a, a backyard barbecue scene and the guy was juggling a barbecue grill a bag of charcoal yeah. and, a, and a six pack of beers. That's funny. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, they ended up going with Philip Welford, <laughs> who had a, a routine where he had got some stuff off a table. He did a wonderful Adam and Eve routine where he would just keep bringing out different stuff. And they had him just juggling random stuff. But right. it's all about the look. I and mean, especially if you match the look and the description of what they're looking for initially. Here's the thing on that. I remember I was up for a commercial for some uh, phone company thing or from it was it was such a like olden days when it was like your phone could do three things. It was way before iPhone and Mark Neiser was up for it. And I'm like, holy crap, this guy's the real deal. Why am I even here? And they liked my look. And one of the things that I had back in the day, I, I can do it now with the, the uh, tables that turn you upside down, but I used to have these two wooden struts, a big metal bar that goes over top, and I would kick myself over and juggle fire while hanging upside down. That was the thing. They were like, oh, we like that fire upside down thing. That's why we want you. And it was just because I fit a trick and a look. He's by far a better juggler than I am. But that one trick... And my look got me the gig. Yeah, I mean, I saw that one and I thought that's a pretty impressive trick. That would have been a good like street show trick or a, a performance trick because it has the danger aspect. It's yeah. original. So how long does it take and what were the difficulties of juggling fire upside down? I remember, I'm going to give, uh, do you remember the San Francisco street juggler? I think his name was Ray Jason. Do you remember? Uh, San Francisco's original street juggler. He's also been a guest on the Drop Everything podcast. Yes. I, you know what? I want to, I want to say back, he's also one of the influences. When I first was interested in, I saw him and I thought he was so super charming. And I remember he laid on the stage and juggled fire over his head. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go home and start practicing juggling fire over my head, laying down. Well, then I was like, well, if I can juggle it over my head, laying down, it's just another angle to do it upside down. You know what I mean? And so that's how that came about. I did a fair amount of um, it in certain shows, but it was, it, actually, let me just say that going upside down for a long time, just a lot of blood rushing to your head. I'm like, this will be for special occasions, as they say. When you're talking about LA and you're talking about, you know, doing these commercials and stuff, let's go back to the one with Ringo Starr. What, what did you actually do a show with Ringo Starr? Was he in the commercial with you? Yes, uh, it, it was this, it was uh, one of those commercials where it was uh, when I first got to town where it was for um, a credit card company called Private Issue. It was, it was like Discover Card. It was the same company as Discover Card. And um, they really liked my acting in that one. It wasn't even juggling. And, and then I didn't even know who was going to be in the commercial because most of the celebrities we were with, they did a weird splice in. Like 
Tony Bennett was in it and they would just splice us in. But this one, they wanted us actually with the celebrity and they flew myself. And this one, I first met my friend, Steve Valentine, who's ama an amazing magician. They flew us all up to Canada because it was better for Ringo's tax purposes to shoot it in Canada. And I thought that was funny. And it's funny because it's like, you're thinking this is a beetle. This has such a gravitas with, with music. I, I mean, I still say the Beatles are the number one band. I mean, you can make arguments for other people or whatever, but they, they were iconic. And then we set up the shot for this spot and then Ringo comes down and they introduce us and we have a few minutes of like, hello, Ringo, how are you? How are you? <laughs> you know, not a lot of small talk. Sure, of course. We shoot for at most 20 minutes, just work because he's the celebrity. He's like, I think we got it. And then Ringo goes away. So there wasn't like stories of, you know, after the shoot, we're all going out to dinner with Ringo. No, but it was delightful and it was great. Now you have a connection with another famous singer. I don't think you were, he was in the commercial, but he approved you for the commercial. This is the legend that I've been told. Now, I did my spinning cheeseburger, but it was actually a donut at the time. I did a commercial for uh, Capitol Records and I spun a donut on a parasol and they had a nice drummer and it looked really good. It looked great. It was a really fun spot to do. And, and I said to him, you know, I know Sinatra, Frank Sinatra is very meticulous on who can advertise and who can work, who can, what the deal is advertising his merchandise, CD, whatever. Did he have to approve me and the other acts? And the ad director said, absolutely. He approved everybody because when he was still alive. Now, were they screwing with me? Were they not? I like to think that he did approve me. And that's what I'm going to stick with. Well, it's a good story. And like I think he was because uh, especially like his opening acts, anybody that appeared with him, anybody that was involved with him, he was pretty much in control from what I've heard. I never met him or worked with him, but that was what I also heard about Frank Sinatra. Yeah, so I'm going to say he approved me, so I'm Frank Sinatra approved. It's funny because I did a commercial for, with Frank Sinatra. I worked with Ringo, and then I was spliced in with Elvis. Three legends. This one's great. You're a, a gas station attendant, and you spot Elvis, but unfortunately your camera is is lacking battery. That's energi energizer, yeah, right? it was energizer, and the fa my favorite thing about that, and is this, um, this is a little bit of showbiz situation where you've got two great gigs and you have to cancel one of them. Here's how it worked. I, I got a call to go right to callbacks because I wanted another look for this Elvis one. And so I went right to callbacks and immediately I got it. It was very exciting because it was like, this is Energizer battery with the Energizer bunny. This is going to be, and they were saying, this is going to be at least like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Right. Enough to make, this is back in the day when that's enough to make my benefits for a whole year, which is great. I was scheduled on the day of the shoot. I was scheduled to do a warm up on a sitcom, which is a couple grand. I had to call up my producer and say, listen, I have an opportunity to make $30,000. I have to take it. I'm sorry I'm leaving you in lurch, but here is the name of a, an amazing warm-up, And that was my buddy, Don Reed, who I got, then got to give him the gig. And, they, and my producer on the uh, sitcom was like, no problem, we get it. That makes sense. Get your benefits, go make the big money. And I was honest. People say, well, why don't you just say you were sick, whatever. My thing is, if you can't be honest, somebody's going to find out. If, if I said I was sick and then they had to find somebody, I came in with a fill-in, I came in with honesty, and that's what I want to promote with everybody to, to just try to be honest when if you're, if somebody, they'll understand if you can make thirty to $40,000 that that's a big deal. And when you talk about benefits, you're talking about you have benefits because you're a member of the union. Yes, Screen Actors Guild. Yes, absolutely. So it's important to make a certain amount of money every year to qualify for insurance, to qualify for benefits. That, so that's part of being a union member. That is exactly true. And uh, luckily, I was, you know, I'm still a union member. And weirdly enough, last year I, I had four union jobs, which was, not, which was nice. But it has provided us, it was been having kids, having two kids that have been covered by that has been amazing. And then for the first 10 years, I had the union benefits. And then all of a sudden I didn't, I started not making enough, but, but it gave my wife enough time doing voiceovers to then have the benefits. So we've been covered in LA with union benefits I think for 
seven years or an incredible amount of time, which is great. And also that you then qualify for a pension. People uh -huh. don't realize that yeah. if you're a, if you do commercials and you're an actor, when you retire or when you hit a certain age, you're also eligible to get uh, the kind of Social Security style uh, payments. Uh, absolutely. And I'm I'm in, I'm vested. And if I took it right now, I'd get about an extra ten thousand dollars a year or some, I think 11,000. Hopefully, you know, if I get a couple more good commercials, if, if, if it still happens that I get one, once you're older, you're somewhat less marketable in the commercial world. That's just how it is. But if I did, I could boost that up even some more, which would be nice. Now, you kind of mentioned it, but let's talk about your signature trick. You talk about learning to roll an object on a parasol, but at a certain point, you started doing it with a cheeseburger. And that became your trademark. How did that come about? It's a, it's, like everything, and I'm sure you know, it's like you're just sitting in line at a McDonald's thinking about things. It's like spinning a ball on a parasol is boring and dumb. And there's the old clown trick where you, you know, you spin one with a string on it, you tip it over, they all see it's connected, you clip the string, and then you spin it. But that's, I don't know, 100 years old, maybe? I don't know. I, I saw it in an old, old vaudeville book on that. And I'm like, what can I... What can I spin that makes it different? And I was like, let me get a cheeseburger. I was in line at a cheeseburger and I got a cheeseburger. And lo and behold, there was like, it's really, it, it, it worked. And then that was in the show that got me on the David Letterman show and Stupid Human Tricks. That's been on America's Got Talent, uh, the James Corden show. But then it started evolving, even like the last six, seven years, I learned how to spin it and it unwraps itself from its paper. That's only been in the show for like six or seven years. Then I learned how to make pickles shoot out of it as it's spinning, <laughs> bounce it off my knee, um, do a parasol to parasol transfer, then douse it with lighter fluid if I'm at like a warehouse show or an outdoor show and spin it while it's on fire. And there's always another level you can keep on thinking about. And the thing that I've not perfected, but I've done for like 10 to 15 seconds is two parasols and two burgers. But it like you got to gear up for that. And it's not consistent. It, I don't know if it'll ever even be in the show, but I've gotten it for 10, 15 seconds after practicing for 15 minutes. I think you understand also it's not really about the difficulty. I mean, people are, are not going well. It would be great if you could do it with two cheeseburgers. They like the novelty of what they're seeing. They like the fact that it's it's funny. And when the pickles fly out, sometimes they hit me in the face. <laughs> sometimes one time at the Magic Castle when I was doing a week there, it flew out and I didn't know where it went to. And I looked at the audience because right before I was introducing the next act, I want to pick up the pickle so the next act doesn't fall. And they're all screaming, it's in your pocket. And I looked down <laughs> and it had flown into my suit pocket and just was there like a like a little um, uh, uh, handkerchief or something peeking out of my pocket. Well, you mentioned a show that there's a lot of sort of conflicting opinions about among the juggling world. You're on America's Got Talent. You know, we've heard some good stories, some bad stories. What was your experience like? I'm going to go bad, good, ambivalent. And this is how I say it's bad. Okay. Right. It, the, the show is constructed. You, Everyone that goes into any kind of show has to know that they do not care about you. They care about the narrative. Even if you're the best performer in the world. Like, I mean, look at, I mean, Ivan Passell is amazing. And I think he was on an episode or whatever. I don't know. And I think he was on when David Hasselhoff said he hated jugglers on that. And I mean, and so you, here's how it was, it was bad. I come out there, I do my thing, which took me years, my cheeseburger trick, which took me many years to learn. I had Heidi Klum throw it on. This was before I learned how to do all the other tricks. So she threw it on, I did a bunch of other stuff, did my little patter, and Mel B buzzes me, you know, and then they do their concert. Yeah, the, the mega talent Mel B. Yes, and she's- and We should judge everybody's talent. Her refrain was, I think I could do that. And it's like not even understanding like the years and years and years you practice things. It's like me saying, yes, I could sing your songs. Then again, maybe I could. But also it's, they don't understand that you're doing something original as well. Right, right. I'm not even just singing somebody else's song and they're loving it because somebody else is getting an emotional reaction from a song they like. But the bit that happened that was good is this. Heidi Klum was helping me, but before we started the bit, 
her and Simon got in like a little fake fight and she started throwing some of my cheeseburgers at him and it hit his, uh, his drink cup and the audience cheered and went wild. Well, because of that, I took all the footage, re-edited it so that when I was doing my trick and talking to Heidi, it looks like the audience is cheering for me. Is anybody going <laughs> to, so I, right. I did what they did. They're using the footage for their, their things. And then I'm using the footage for mine. And we're all, we're both getting what we want because, you know, nobody's going to go back and say, wait a minute, they weren't cheering for you. <laughs> exactly. And subsequently, they, because I do so well on social media, they keep on wanting me to come back. And I'm like, listen, you don't pay. Every other show I've done pays, like, you know, Letterman pays, Corden pays, weird game shows that I've done have paid. Um. The Gong Show with David Tell paid. All these shows pay. You don't pay. And then number two is I don't have a tragic backstory, which you really gravitate to because that helps your narrative. So it's like I've turned them down five times, I think, at least. And you've done it. Like once yeah. you have it on your on your resume, I think that's enough sometimes to go. Well, I think I think, unfortunately, it is one of the shows now that helps you sell an act. A hundred percent. Yes. No, I, I uh, concur because it's like my friends that I had one friend that was like in the top 10 and another friend, well, several friends in the top 10 and then one got second and he, but he was a stuttering comic at the time. My friend Drew Lynch. Drew somebody? Yeah, Drew. Yeah. Drew Lynch. And weirdly enough, he's worked with a speech coach long enough now that he doesn't have a, a stutter anymore. And I was texting back and forth the other day about how people are upset that he's he solved his affliction. Like, <laughs> why don't you stutter anymore? Well, I'm still funny. I just don't have a stutter anymore, which is really funny. And how sad if you had to then put it on. Yes, exactly. Because I remember, I know Drew when he was working at Flappers Comedy Club with me and he got hit in the side of the throat with a softball that took a wicked bounce. And then I remember seeing is, um, what kind of scope is it that goes down your throat? It's whatever, endoscope uh, or whatever it is. Okay, I know what you're talking about. I don't know the name offhand, but I, yeah, the one that goes down your throat like a, with a camera. I saw the footage of it. So when people said he was putting it on, I'm like, no, he showed me the footage on his phone, how his vocal cords got screwed up and that he had to relearn how to, you know, not stutter because of this weird nerve damage or whatever it was. I'm not, you know, I don't know, but I saw the scope. I saw what it should look like and what it looked like, what was wrong about it. And so that's what always infuriated me when people say, oh, he's just making, he's just putting that on. Let's talk about these shows and let's talk about exposure. So you've done a lot of these shows, like the James Corden Late, Late, Late Show and David Letterman. So see, people see that as jugglers. When you do those shows, does the phone ring? Is there some is there some experience of uh, this exposure paying off? You know, I would say in the short term, no. But in the long term, yes. Right after you do a show, no one's calling you up. I mean, because I'm doing bits on a show. It's not like back in the day when Johnny Carson said, um, please welcome Michael Davis. That's life changing. That's career changing. But now there's so many shows and such a niche market that it's it's not life changing. And I'm doing like, oh, he's coming on to do this bit that he does. But when people come to my website and see that I've been on these shows, it gives you credibility. So it allows you to get to another tier of like, oh, he's a professional. And then you can command a little bit more money and and have a little bit more respect if you didn't have the TV credits. So that's I think it's like. Short term, no. Long term, yes. Yeah, my favorite story is a, a friend of mine, a Geechee guy. I don't know if you know Geechee guy. I a hundred percent. I worked. I don't. Even, he wouldn't even remember me because it was like back in the day when I was going around to little local clubs and hosting or whatever in Owasso, Michigan. And I remember this guy starting out named Geechee guy. I, I think we chatted briefly. So yes. Yeah, my favorite story. He was on. I don't know if it was the Tonight Show or some show, and the only call he got was some woman. It was explained to him that he had some kind of disease, that he had Morphin's disease based on the, how he looked. That's so sad. That is, <laughs> such a, that is such a great story that it's like uh, you're hoping it's a booking and it's like, uh, no, I just want to tell you what you have. Oh, that's terrible. But now there's a new way to get exposure and you've really kind of uh, taken to that. Let's talk about your social media work and how you got started with TikTok and Instagram. 
because you have what a couple hundred views, a couple hundred million views. Yeah. And how does that translate into both financial success and hopefully more bookings? Yes. You know, weirdly enough, so I get recognized more by being an internet juggler than I do on my TV stuff. I was just on Access Daily with Mario Lopez. Nobody saw it. But like, I'll just be at a restaurant or whatever. And probably once a week, somebody says, are you the guy from the internet? And it's very exciting and it's really nice. Uh, how it got started was like all of us in the variety world that re rely on being in front of people. Within a week during the beginning of COVID, I had 120 shows evaporate. Just, it was, it was that. It was like, what am I gonna do? And instead of just losing my mind, like a lot of us, probably lost our minds. I was like, okay, my kids are home. One's in the living room doing, uh, one's in the office doing her school. My other one's doing college in her bedroom. My wife's in her sound booth doing her stuff. I'm going outside and I'm gonna at least post once a day and see what happens. And so I just started posting things. And once I, the very first thing was the cheeseburger trick. It went nuts. I went to bed with a hundred followers on TikTok TikTok and then woke up with like a hundred thousand mm, and then nice. I, I was trending on Reddit and then my Instagram started to go crazy. So then, okay, I'm onto something. And then I started like with, I use tennis rackets for double sticks. Those started doing well. And then just all my tricks, put them all together. I've been viral on Instagram. I think um, 10 times. Like, and what does that mean, viral? Is that a certain I, number you have What I read, it's over a million. I don't know if that's okay. true, but I'm, you know, one time on, on Instagram, I did a 26 million view thing. And then on TikTok, I've been viral like 18 times. TikTok, at most, my whole history on TikTok, I've made, I think, $1,000, like coffee money. And that's what, that's like, how many views to even get $1,000? I don't even know, because sometimes if I get, like, I would get a million views and I, I'd be like $70, $80 on <laughs> okay. Then I posted some dangerous stuff that they thought dangerous, and I saw other people like Grace Good who um, does like big events, was doing stuff with fire. I thought I could do stuff with fire. And next thing you know, I'm completely off the platform. Oh. And I have to find my friend who's a, uh, a little bit of a celebrity and he had the backdoor contact. So I called him, he gave me the info, I emailed TikTok and, and I got back on, but they demonetized me for half a year. During that time I was demonetized, I had a video go 16 million. And so I was kind of bummed out that I was demonetized for uh, six months and I had a 16 million view video. But then Instagram started paying me money for like six months until they, and that was like 2,500 bucks over six months. Sometimes it was like 300 bucks, sometimes 900 bucks, whatever. But then they stopped that program. But another way I've been making money on those things is um, there's another company called Storyful and they make these little news packages or whatever with my videos. And I don't even know when it's gonna happen. Like it's happened uh, five times. All of a sudden I get $500 into my PayPal and they've sold these packages, you know? So it's little bits and pieces. Then people call me up and say, hey, can you do a trick and wish my buddy a happy birthday? I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'm like done and done. And I go out and do five minutes of something and I get a hundred bucks. And then I put a tip jar on my Instagram during COVID and made $6,000, which was very nice. So all these things together kind of work to get me through COVID. I still make money on the internet. On occasion, people call me up to say, hey, can you do a, a like for instance, Carl's Jr. I'm Hardy's, which is like Carl's Jr. here in LA said, hey, can you do uh, something with our toaster sticks and make a couple videos and we'll give you 1500 bucks? Uh, I will. Nice. <laughs> so, of course I can. So yeah. it's still not like real influencer money, but it's it's passive income that does happen and it's it keeps on happening, which is nice. And there's a, like you said, there's a recognizable factor where people are like, oh, there's the guy I saw him. Yeah, and it really helps once again, having that in the youth market, because I'm 60 and I have tons of fans who are in like 15 to 45 in my demographics on that. So it shows that just because I'm 60, I still can transcend that supposed age gap of not being the hipster guy. I remember before you told me a story too that someone showed your son a video like, hey, have you seen this guy? Oh, it was my daughter. Yeah, yeah, it was my daughter. Oh, your daughter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was me. But, and even here's another one that I didn't mention before, which was even funnier. 
my daughter was dating a guy and he was in college in Washington, D.C. And on the dorm, they had like a dorm chat group where they would send funny videos. And they were like, hey, check out this crazy juggler dude doing a Nicolas Cage shot, you know? And everyone was like, that's amazing. That's crazy. And then he was like, yeah, that's my uh, girlfriend's dad. And they thought it was a joke that he was saying, that's my girlfriend's dad. So he, when he came to visit uh, during break, he had to come take v videos of him outside just to prove that, yes, he was my girlfriend's, that I am the dad of, of his girlfriend. And you go by the handle Broken Juggler. How'd that come about? I tripped over like a, um, a like a little cement wall that I thought I could jump over and I caught my foot and fell onto my shoulder and immediately I thought I broke my shoulder and I was like oh my gosh my my career's over what am I doing this was like I remember specifically it was the week that Iron Man came out so it's ironic that I went to see Iron Man and on the way out I hurt my shoulder and I was a broken man after seeing Iron Man. <laughs> okay and I came home and I looked in the mirror and I just saw my shoulder sitting down below me. And I drove to the emergency and they uh, gave me some medicine to, um, you know, um, not put me out, but just get me a little toilety and so no pain. And they pulled it back in. Oh. And it was fine. And then it would come out again. And then I did it. I, I went back and they did it again. And then I was like, you know what? I think I can just do this. And I learned how to put my arm back in. And because... I went to the orthopedist and they were like, you know, you'd be out of commission six to 12 weeks. And I said, but when it's in, I know now how to not make it go out. Just don't hyperextend it. So I just learned how to not hyperextend it. And I have had it come out during a show, but that's Ooh. after I knew how to put it back in. So I had to tell the audience, excuse me, while I put my shoulder back in. <laughs> And I laid on the floor and I pulled it back in and I went on with the show. And then a week later, somebody said, you didn't do the shoulder bit where you put it back in. I said, no, that was not a bit. It does come out on occasion. I just never got it fixed because they said it, I would just be out of commission for a while. And I get a little bit worried about people that I know have had shoulder stuff. They said it's never quite the same because I can do my whole show with the labrum is disconnected. That's what's the problem. And you mentioned uh, the Nick Cage pillow. That's another thing that you feature in your little videos. Uh, explain what the Nick Cage Pillow does and how it ended up in your videos. My daughter had a bunch of stuff to go to Goodwill. And, and I said, why is the Nick Cage Pillow here? She goes, ah, I don't want him anymore. She had him as a kind of a kitschy gift that she got like for Christmas three or four years ago. And so I said, well, I'll take it. And weirdly enough, at the same time, I saw a ladder that I thought I could use to have different variations with the ladder. And I put the Nick Cage pillow on the ladder. Now, for people, the Nick Cage pillow has sequins on one side. And you, when you stroke his face, then his face appears, which makes it more magical. So I start doing the double stick. I start spinning the racket on one, which is the tennis racket double stick. I reveal his face. I climb up on the ladder. I make a basket with him. And then I get a double double stick. And I do double double sticks, one in each hand. Doubled rackets, double tennis rackets. Mm -hmm. And I throw it up on the internet. And next thing you know, people are saying, why is Josh Brolin featuring you on his story that wants ah. to be you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I go to Josh Brolin's story. He wants to be me. And then all of a sudden, Jennifer Garner is uh, like, um, put me on her Instagram. And all of a sudden, I go from like 37,000 followers to like 100,000 followers on Instagram. And that video alone got me like 26 million views and just tons of people reaching out. And I think I even might have sold that one. There was a couple of videos I sold to like Ellen. I don't know if that was that one. It was something else. But anyways, that was how Nick Cage. And then I did another one where I started doing super long shots with Nick Cage, where I was spinning a donut on a parasol and I did like a half court backwards behind the back Nick Cage shot and that one went viral also so various variations of Nick Cage have gone viral and people like them for some reason because it's obscure it's weird it's I kind of I'll, I'll look at jugglers that I really like that are just doing numbers juggling and they don't get as many views as these it's because sometimes audiences just need that weird thing to click for them and I don't know what it is it just happened to click you know what I mean it's just a weird thing 
When did you start doing the, the tennis rackets instead of just the regular devil stick? Oh, that was early on. You know, the regular devil stick, and I don't mean to besmirch all my juggling friends and all the flow artists that do devil sticks, but for some reason, they don't read to an audience. I And I was like, this just isn't hitting with an audience. And then I was like, let me do a racket instead. And they like it. It's something the audience can know. I know that thing. It's not a gimmick, you know, because magicians do that thing where it's on a thread or whatever, the dancing cane. But with the racket, they see a racket and they understand it. Whereas just with an, you know, a crystal stick, a double stick or whatever, they're like, eh, whatever. And so that's, I think that's why I just, it, it connected with the audience better. Well, you've, you've hit upon another really good, important thing for judges to think about. It's, it's, it's not just you doing it and how you like it. Because a lot of times we love juggling. We love to see juggling. We love to do juggling. you got to put yourself in the audience's place. Oh. They want to see something memorable. They want to see something they can relate to. And they like seeing things that are weird. Yeah. No, we, absolutely. Because it's like I, the most thing that I remember, I remember seeing this uh, video. I think it was, um, uh, uh, um, oh, rats, rats. I'm all of a sudden, Anthony Gatto. Anthony Gatto. Okay. Do you remember this video he did? Um he said to kid, like there was a knock on the door and a bunch of kids. He said, "You want to see a world record?" Oh, right, right. He does it in his driveway. And yeah. and what I took from that was really profound. And I hope people took what it was profound was the kids just kind of watched and it went away. World records sometimes don't mean anything to regular people. I mean, you can be a world champion, and they just sort of watch and they don't get it. Whereas you'll have like, uh, is it John Gilkey doing just an expressive weird thing with just three balls or whatever and it's a, a, a showstopper you know what i mean well look at look at the most popular video is probably still the chris bliss yes beatles video yes and he's not he's only doing three balls and it was like the so funny though i remember hearing pendulette and i'll get back to two things on pendulette was saying okay and he said something like this on his podcast this is way back before the, i think this was his one of his original podcasts he was saying chris bliss people like him and he does a lot of shows. Jason Garfield, who's phenomenal as a juggler, people don't like him. And I was in an audience of college bookers, and I have this verified fact that I was at a, an, I don't know if it was a NACA or APCA convention, and I was there when Jason Garfield started his thing off by having uh, Penn and Teller come on and say how good he was. Then he did his bit where he said, would you rather see me eat an apple or do an ass catch or something like that. And the audience said, eat an apple. And it kind of made him mad because he could do better things. And he he was, the audience was not connecting with him. And I hope he, if he hears this, I'm just telling you what I was, what I saw from the audience. I hope he, you know, it's like, it's not, I think you're amazing. Your skills blow my mind. But the audience was like, you asked us what we wanted. You know what I mean? And sometimes the audience wants what the audience wants. And that's what it is. Well, I think, you know, to make a living, you have to be a commercial artist. And part of being a commercial artist is not being commercial in the bad sense. Right. But it's delivering the, the something the audience wants to see. I saw recently a juggler on a, a, a news program promoting a show. And he's doing a seven ball, five up pirouette. And the audience is just makes no response at all. Right. And it just, just shows you that it's not about standing there juggling. It's about the personality. It's about the look of the performer and the way people can relate to them. It's about giving them some kind of unique experience. Yeah. No, I I, I totally agree. And I was going to say, Pendulette, as the bonus Pendulette thing, he was like, uh, somebody said, I've never seen a double stick routine I liked. And then somebody sent him my stuff with rackets. And then he said, I stand corrected. And that was very validating for me to, that he liked my racket stuff. Well, you've had a lot of career highlights and we're coming towards the end of our time. Let's talk about one more because you made your own comedy special, uh, Bananas. Is that something we can we can watch? You know, I don't even know where it is. It was a it was a company that wanted to do kind of clean comedy. It was sort of way before Dry Bar, which is very popular right now. And so they just contacted me and, and flew me to Columbus and we shot it. It was on like Christian TV stations quite a bit. Even to this day, a lot of people on my uh, social media say, I remember this when I was a kid. Did you do a Bananas thing? And you know, it's weird because that 
you, as we progress, like I have so many other bits now than they're in that video. That video represents me so long ago. It's still great. And I still appreciate that I got to do it, but I do so much more now. Let's talk about now and the future. What's uh, the future hold for, for Michael Rayner? Well, you know, I, I keep on just doing live shows whenever people have me. I'm doing a ton of libraries still that I always do. I'm always working at the Magic Castle. You know, when I can get down, I try to work the, the Magic Lounge, Hermosa Beach Comedy Magic, all these things. There is a possibility, like I hooked up with uh, Gearbox Entertainment where I've done their corporate party and I've done shows at their house. And we've been talking about maybe doing another comedy special, then they'll produce it. So hopefully we'll see if that comes to fruition. They were finishing up one project and then we'll see if that happens. That would be thrilling. I would love to have another comedy special. And now you can add that you've done the Drop Everything podcast to your list of accomplishments. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> the IJA, it intimidates me because when I look at these 19-year-old dudes that are machines, I'm like, why, why? I can't go there. They're just machines. You know what I mean? Well, the, the IJ is so much more. I mean, it's a community. Yeah. Uh, going to the festivals and it's an experience where you have jugglers at all different levels and all different involvements in juggling. Some are purely hobbyists. You know, some are professionals. Some are sort of people who just appreciate it. They might not even really juggle much themselves. They just appreciate the art. Right. And I'm sure you'd be a great MC for the show so you could do all your different stunts. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. You tell me when and I'm ready. Well, not this year, but I'll definitely, I'm not involved, but I'll definitely make a recommendation because I think you would do a great job as emceeing for the, either the Welcome Show or the Cascade of Stars. Oh, that would be terrific. Yeah. And, you know, and Kelvin knows me and a lot of the people do know me. So it's nice. So. Well, hopefully more people will know you. And a big thanks to comedian, juggler, actor, strange guy, Michael Rayner. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 118, my conversation with Michael Rayner. A lot of great information about commercials, sitcom warm-ups, and so much more to learn from this great versatile performer. Also, don't forget to check out Eric Bates' book, The Contemporary Circus Handbook, available at Amazon.com, and more information can be found on his website. All right, let's thank the IJA. I wish I was there in South Bend juggling with all you good folks, but if not... Remember, drop everything except when you're juggling.